0: Section ten of Six Stories by George MacDonald This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org. Recording by Matt Braymiller Six Stories by George MacDonald Section ten Uncle Cornelius His Story Part two. IT WAS A DRIZZLY AFTERNOON IN THE BEGINNING OF THE LAST WEEK OF OCTOBER WHEN I LEFT THE TOWN OF BRADFORD IN A POST-CHASE TO DRIVE TO LUTON GRANGE, THE PROPERTY OF MY FRIEND'S FATHER. I HAD HARDLY LEFT THE TOWN AND THE TWILIGHT HAD ONLY BEGUN TO DEEPEN WHEN, GLANCING FROM ONE OF THE WINDOWS OF THE CHASE, I FANCIED I SAW, BETWEEN ME AND THE HEDGE, THE dim FIGURE OF A HORSE KEEPING PACE WITH US. I THOUGHT IN THE FIRST INTERVAL OF UNREASON THAT IT WAS A SHADOW FROM MY OWN HORSE but reminded myself the next moment that there could be no shadow where there was no light when i looked again i was at the first glance convinced that my eyes had deceived me at the second i believed once more that a shadowy something with the movements of a horse and harness was keeping pace with us i turned away again with some discomfort and not till we had reached an open moorland road whence a little watery light was visible on the horizon could i summon up courage enough to look out once more certainly then there was nothing to be seen and i persuaded myself that it had been all a fancy and lighted a cigar with my feet on the cushions before me i had soon lifted myself on the clouds of tobacco far above all the terrors of the night and believed them banished for ever but my cigar coming to an end just as we turned into the avenue that led up to the grange i found myself once more glancing nervously out of the window the moment the trees were about me there was if not a shadowy horse out there by the side of the chase yet certainly more than half that conviction in here in my consciousness when i saw my friend however standing on the doorstep dark against the glow of the hall fire i forgot all about it and i need not add that i did not make it a subject of conversation when i entered for i was well aware that it was essential to a man's reputation that his senses should be accurate though his heart might without prejudice swarm with shadows and his judgment be a very stable of hobbies i was kindly received mrs hetheridge had been dead for some years and letitia the eldest of the family was at the head of the household she had two sisters little more than girls the father was a burly yet gentlemanlike yorkshire squire who ate well drank well looked radiant and hunted twice a week in this pastime his son joined him when in the humour which happened scarcely so often i who had never crossed a horse in my life took his apology for not being able to mount me very coolly assuring him that i would rather loiter about with a book than be in at the death of the best hunted fox in yorkshire I very soon found myself at home with the Hetheridges, and very soon again I began to find myself not so much at home, for Miss Hetheridge, Letitia, as I soon ventured to call her, was fascinating. I have told you, Katie, that there was an empty place in my heart. Look to the door then, Katie. That was what made me so ready to fall in love with Letitia. Her figure was graceful, and I think even now her face would have been beautiful but for a certain contraction of the skin over the nostrils, suggesting an invisible thumb and forefinger pinching them, which repelled me, although I did not then know what it indicated. I had not been with her one evening before the impression it made on me had vanished, and that so entirely that I could hardly recall the perception of the peculiarity which had occasioned it. Her observation was remarkably keen and her judgment generally correct she had great confidence in it herself nor was she devoid of sympathy with some of the forms of human imagination only they never seemed to possess for her any relation to practical life that was to be ordered by the judgment alone i do not mean she ever said so i am only giving the conclusions i came to afterwards it is not necessary that you should have any more thorough acquaintance with her mental character one point in her moral nature of special consequence to my narrative will show itself by and by i did all i could to make myself agreeable to her and the more i succeeded the more delightful she became in my eyes we walked in the garden and grounds together we read or rather i read and she listened read poetry katy Sometimes till we could not read any more for certain haziness and huskiness which look now, I am afraid, considerably more absurd than they really were, or even ought to look. In short, I considered myself thoroughly in love with her. And wasn't she in love with you, uncle? Don't interrupt me, child. I don't know. I hoped so then. I hope the contrary now. She liked me, I am sure. That is not much to say. Liking is very pleasant and very cheap. Love is as rare as a star. I thought the stars were anything but rare, Uncle. That's because you never went out to find one for yourself, Katie. They would prove a few miles apart then. But it would be big enough when I did find it. Right, my dear. That is the way with love. Letitia was a good housekeeper. Everything was punctual as clockwork. I used the word advisedly. If her father, who was punctual to one date, the dinner hour, made any remark to the contrary as he took up the carving knife, Letitia would instantly send one of her sisters to question the old clock in the hall and report the time to half a minute. It was sure to be found that, if there was a mistake, the mistake was in the clock. But although it was certainly a virtue to have her household in such perfect order, it was not a virtue to be impatient with every infringement of its rules on the part of others she was very severe for instance upon her two younger sisters if the moment after the second bell had rung they were not seated at the dinner-table washed and aproned order was a very idol with her hence the house was too tidy for any sense of comfort If you left an open book on the table, you would, on returning to the room a moment after, find it put aside. What the furniture of the drawing-room was like I never saw, for not even on Christmas Day, which was the last day I spent there, was it uncovered. Everything in it was kept in bibs and pinafores, even the carpet was covered with a cold and slippery sheet of brown holland. Mr. Hetheridge never entered that room, and therein was wise james remonstrated once she answered him quite kindly even playfully but no change followed what was worse she made very wretched tea her father never took tea neither did james i was rather fond of it but i soon gave it up everything her father partook of was first-rate everything else was somewhat poverty-stricken My pleasure in Letitia's society prevented me from making practical deductions from such trifles. I shouldn't have thought you knew anything about eating, Uncle, said Janet. The less a man eats, the more he likes to have it good, Janet. In short, there can be no harm in saying it now. Letitia was so far from being like the name of her baptism, and most names are so good that they are worth thinking about. No children are named after bad ideas. Letitia was so far unlike hers as to be stingy, an abominable fault. But, I repeat, the notion of such a fact was far from me then. And now for my story. The first of November was a very lovely day, quite one of the halcyon days of St. Martin's summer. I was sitting in a little arbor, I had just discovered, with a book in my hand, not reading, however, but day-dreaming, when, lifting my eyes from the ground, I was startled to see through a thin shrub in front of the arbor what seemed the form of an old lady seated, apparently reading from a book on her knee. The sight instantly recalled the old lady of Russell Square. I started to my feet then, and clear of the intervening bush saw only a great stone such as abounded on the moors in the neighborhood, with a lump of quartz set on the top of it. Some childish taste had put it there for an ornament. Smiling at my own folly, I sat down again and reopened my book. After reading for a while, I glanced up again and once more started to my feet, overcome by the fancy that there verily sat the old lady reading. You will say it indicated an excited condition of the brain. Possibly, but I was, as far as I can recall, quite collected and reasonable. I was almost vexed this second time, and sat down once more to my book. Still, every time I looked up, I was startled afresh. I doubt, however, if the trifle is worth mentioning, or has any significance even in relation to what followed. After dinner I strolled out by myself, leaving father and son over their claret. I did not drink wine, and from the lawn I could see the windows of the library, whither Letitia commonly retired from the dinner-table. It was a very lovely soft night. There was no moon, but the stars looked wider awake than usual. Dew was falling, but the grass was not yet wet, and I wandered about on it for half an hour. The stillness was somehow strange. It had a wonderful feeling in it, as if something were expected as if the quietness were the mould in which some event or other was about to be cast even then i was a reader of certain sorts of recondite lore suddenly i remembered that this was the eve of all souls this was the night on which the dead came out of their graves to visit their old homes poor dead i thought with myself have you any place to call a home now if you have surely you will not wander back here where all that you called home has either vanished or given itself to others to be their home now and yours no more what an awful doom the old fancy has allotted you to dwell in your graves all the year and creep out this one night to enter at the midnight door left open for welcome a poor welcome truly just an open door a clean swept floor and a fire to warm your rain sodden limbs THE HOUSEHOLD ASLEEP, AND THE HOUSEPLACE SWARMING WITH THE GHOSTS OF ANCIENT TIMES, THE MISER, THE SPENDTHRIFT, THE PROFLIGATE, THE COQUETTE. FOR THE GOOD GHOSTS SLEEP, AND ARE TROUBLED WITH NO WAKING LIKE YOURS. NOT ONE MAN, SLEEPLESS LIKE YOURSELVES, TO QUESTION YOU, AND BE ANSWERED AFTER THE FASHION OF THE OLD NURSERY RHYME. WHAT MAKES YOUR EYES SO hold? I'VE lain SO LONG AMONG THE MOLD. WHAT MAKES YOUR FEET SO BROAD? i've walked more than i ever rode yet who can tell i went on to myself it may be your hell to return thus it may be that only on this one night of all the year you can show yourselves to him who can see you but that the place where you were wicked is the hades to which you are doomed for ages i thought and thought till i began to feel the air alive about me and was enveloped in the vapors that dim the eyes of those who strain them for one peep through the dull mica windows that will not open on the world of ghosts at length i cast my fancies away and fled from them to the library where the bodily presence of letitia made the world of ghosts appear shadowy indeed what a reality there is about a bodily presence i said to myself as i took my chamber candle in my hand but what is there more real in a body? I said again, as I crossed the hall. Surely nothing, I went on, as I ascended the broad staircase to my room. The body must vanish. If there be a spirit, that will remain. A body can but vanish, a ghost can appear. I woke in the morning with a sense of such discomfort as made me spring out of bed at once, my foot lighted upon my spectacles, how they came to be on the floor i could not tell for i never took them off when i went to bed when i lifted them i found they were in two pieces the bridge was broken this was awkward i was so utterly helpless without them indeed before i could lay my hand on my hairbrush, i had to peer through one eye of the parted pair when i looked at my watch after i was dressed i found i had risen an hour earlier than usual I groped my way downstairs to spend the hour before breakfast in the library. No sooner was I seated with a book than I heard the voice of Letitia scolding the butler, in no very gentle tones, for leaving the garden door open all night. The moment I heard this, the strange occurrences I am about to relate began to dawn upon my memory. The door had been open the night long between all saints and all souls. In the middle of that night I awoke suddenly, I knew it was not the morning by the sensations I had, for the night feels altogether different from the morning. It was quite dark, my heart was beating violently, and I either hardly could breathe or hardly dared breathe. A nameless terror was upon me, and my sense of hearing was, apparently by the force of its expectation, unnaturally roused and keen. There it was, a slight noise in the room, slight, but clear, and with an unknown significance about it. It was awful to think it would come again. I do believe it was only one of those creaks in the timbers which announce the torpid, age-long sinking flow of every house back to the dust, a motion to which the flow of the glacier is as a torrent, but which is no less inevitable and sure. Day and night it ceases not, but only in the night when the house and heart are still do we hear it no wonder it should sound fearful for are we not the immortal dwellers in ever crumbling clay the clay is so near us and yet not of us that its every movement starts a fresh dismay for what will its final ruin disclose when it falls from about us where shall we find that we have existed all the time my skin tingled with the bursting of the moisture from its pores Something was in the room beside me, a confused, indescribable sense of utter loneliness, and yet awful presence was upon me, mingled with a dreary, hopeless desolation, as of burnt-out love and aimless life. All at once I found myself sitting up, the terror that a cold hand might be laid upon me, or a cold breath blow on me, or a corpse-like face bend down through the darkness over me, had broken my bonds i would meet halfway whatever might be approaching the moment that my will burst into action the terror began to ebb the room in which i slept was a large one perfectly dreary with tidiness i did not know till afterwards that it was letitia's room which she had given up to me rather than prepare another the furniture all but one article was modern and commonplace I could not help remarking to myself afterwards how utterly void the room was of the nameless charm of feminine occupancy. I had seen nothing to wake a suspicion of its being a lady's room. The article I have accepted was an ancient bureau, elaborate and ornate, which stood on one side of the large bow window. The very morning before I had seen a bunch of keys hanging from the upper part of it and had peeped in. Finding, however, that the pigeonholes were full of papers, I closed it at once. I should have been glad to use it, but clearly it was not for me. At that bureau the figure of a woman was now seated in the posture of one writing. A strange, dim light was around her, but whence it proceeded I never thought of inquiring. As if I, too, had stepped over the bourne and was a ghost myself, all fear was now gone i got out of bed and softly crossed the room to where she was seated if she should be beautiful i thought for i had often dreamed of a beautiful ghost that made love to me the figure did not move she was looking at a faded brown paper some old love letter i thought and stepped nearer so cool was i now that i actually peeped over her shoulder With mingled surprise and dismay I found that the dim page over which she bent was that of an old account-book. Ancient household records, in rusty ink, held up to the glimpses of the waning moon, which shone through the parting in the curtains, their entries of shillings and pence, of pounds there was not one. No doubt pounds and farthings are much the same in the world of thought, the true spirit world but in the ghost world this eagerness over shillings and pence must mean something awful ay to think that coins which had since been worn smooth in other pockets and purses which had gone back to the mint and been melted down to come out again and yet again with the heads of new kings and queens that dinners eaten by men and women and children whose bodies had since been eaten by the worms that polish for the floors inches of whose thickness had since been worn away that the hundred nameless trifles of a life utterly vanished should be perplexing annoying and worst of all interesting the soul of a ghost who had been in hades for centuries the writing was very old-fashioned and the words were contracted i could read nothing but the moneys and one single entry corinth v s currants for a christmas pudding most likely ah poor lady the pudding and not the christmas was her care not the delight of the children over it but the beggarly pence which it cost and she cannot get it out of her head although her brain was powdered all as thin as flour ages ago in the mortar of death alas poor ghost it needs no treasure to hoard left behind no floor stained with the blood of the murdered child, no wickedly hidden parchment of landed rights. An old account book is enough for the hell of the housekeeping gentlewoman. She never lifted her face or seemed to know that I stood behind her. I left her and went into the bow window where I could see her face. I was right. It was the same old lady I had met in Russell Square walking in front of James Hetheridge, her withered lips went moving as if they would have uttered words had the breath been commissioned thither. Her brow was contracted over her thin nose, and once and again her shining forefinger went up to her temple as if she were pondering some deep problem of humanity. How long I stood gazing at her, I do not know, but at last I withdrew to my bed and left her struggling to solve that which she could never solve thus it was the symbolic problem of her own life and she had failed to read it i remember nothing more she may be sitting there still solving at the insolvable i should have felt no inclination with the broad sun of the squire's face the keen eyes of james and the beauty of letitia before me at the breakfast table to say a word about what i had seen even if i had not been afraid of the doubts concerning my sanity which the story would certainly awaken what with the memories of the night and the want of my spectacles i passed a very dreary day dreading the return of the night for cool as i had been in her presence i could not regard the possible reappearance of the ghost with equanimity but when the night did come i slept soundly till the morning the next day not being able to read with comfort i went wandering about the place and at length began to fit the outside and the inside of the house together it was a large and rambling edifice parts of it very old parts comparatively modern i first found my own window which looked out the back below this window on one side there was a door i wondered whither it led but found it locked at the moment james approached from the stables WHERE DOES THIS DOOR LEAD? I ASKED HIM. I WILL GET THE KEY, HE ANSWERED. IT IS A RATHER QUEER OLD PLACE. WE USED TO LIKE IT WHEN WE WERE CHILDREN. THERE'S A STAIR, YOU SEE, HE SAID AS HE THREW THE DOOR OPEN. IT LEADS UP OVER THE KITCHEN. I FOLLOWED HIM UP THE STAIR. THERE'S A DOOR INTO YOUR ROOM, HE SAID, BUT IT'S ALWAYS LOCKED NOW. And here's Granny's room, as they call it, though why I have not the least idea, he added as he pushed open the door of an old-fashioned parlor, smelling very musty. A few old books lay on a side table. A china bowl stood beside them with some shriveled scentless rose leaves in the bottom of it. The cloth that covered the table was riddled by moths, and the spider-legged chairs were covered with dust a conviction seized me that the old bureau must have belonged to this room and soon i found the place where i judged it must have stood but the same moment i caught sight of a portrait on the wall above the spot i had fixed upon by jove i cried involuntarily that's the very old lady i met in russell square nonsense said james old-fashioned ladies are like babies they all look the same that's a very old portrait So I see, I answered. It is like a zaccaro. I don't know whose it is, he answered hurriedly, and I thought he looked a little queer. Is she one of the family? I asked. They say so, but who or what she was, I don't know. You must ask Letty, he answered. The more I look at it, I said, the more I am convinced it is the same old lady. Well, he returned with a laugh my old nurse used to say she was rather restless but it's all nonsense that bureau in my room looks about the same date as this furniture i remarked it used to stand just there he answered pointing to the space under the picture well i remember with what awe we used to regard it for they said the old lady kept her accounts at it still we never dared touch the bundles of yellow papers in the pigeon holes I remember thinking Letty a very heroine once when she touched one of them with the tip of her forefinger. She had got yet more courageous by the time she had it moved into her own room. Then that is your sister's room I am occupying? I said. Yes. I am ashamed of keeping her out of it. Oh, she'll do well enough. If I were she, though, I added, I would send that bureau back to its own place. What do you mean, Haywood? do you believe every old wife's tale that ever was told she may get a fright some day that's all i replied he smiled with such an evident mixture of pity and contempt that for the moment i almost disliked him and feeling certain that letitia would receive any such hint in a somewhat similar manner i did not feel inclined to offer her any advice with regard to the bureau little occurred during the rest of my visit worthy of remark Somehow or other I did not make much progress with Letitia. I believe I had begun to see into her character a little, and therefore did not get deeper in love as the days went on. I know I became less absorbed in her society, although I was still anxious to make myself agreeable to her, or, perhaps, more properly, to give her a favorable impression of me. I do not know whether she perceived any difference in my behavior, but I remember that I began again to remark the pinched look of her nose, and to be a little annoyed with her for always putting aside my book. At the same time, I dare say, I was provoking, for I never was given to tidiness myself. At length Christmas arrived. After breakfast, the squire, James, and the two girls arranged to walk to church. Letitia was not in the room at the moment. I excused myself on the ground of a headache, for I had had a bad night. When they left, I went up to my room, threw myself on the bed, and was soon fast asleep. How long I slept I do not know, but I woke again with that indescribable, yet well-known sense of not being alone. The feeling was scarcely less terrible in the daylight than it had been in the darkness. With the same sudden effort as before, I sat up in the bed there was the figure at the open bureau in precisely the same position as on the former occasion but i could not see it so distinctly i rose as gently as i could and approached it after the first physical terror i am not a coward just as i got near enough to see the account book open on the folding cover of the bureau she started up and turning revealed the face of letitia she blushed crimson "'I beg your pardon, Mr. Haywood,' she said in great confusion. "'I thought you had gone to church with the rest.' "'I had lain down with a headache and gone to sleep,' I replied. "'But forgive me, Miss Hetheridge,' I added, for my mind was full of the dreadful coincidence. "'Don't you think you would have been better at church than balancing your accounts on Christmas day?' "'The better day, the better deed,' she said with a somewhat offended air, and turned to walk from the room." excuse me letitia i resumed very seriously but i want to tell you something she looked conscious it never crossed me that perhaps she fancied i was going to make a confession far other things were then in my mind for i thought how awful it was if she too like the ancestral ghost should have to do an age-long penance of haunting that bureau and those horrid figures and i had suddenly resolved to tell her the whole story She listened with varying complexion, and face half-turned aside. When I had ended, which I fear I did with something of a personal appeal, she lifted her head and looked me in the face, with just a slight curl on her thin lip, and answered me, If I had wanted a sermon, Mr. Haywood, I should have gone to church for it. As for the ghost, I am sorry for you. So saying, she walked out of the room. The rest of the day I did not find very merry. I pleaded my headache as an excuse for going to bed early. How I hated that room now. Next morning, immediately after breakfast, I took my leave of Luton Grange. And lost a good wife, perhaps, for the sake of a ghost, uncle, said Janet. If I lost a wife at all, it was a stingy one. I should have been ashamed of her all my life long. Better than a spendthrift, said Janet. How do you know that? returned her uncle. All the difference, I see, is that the extravagant ruins the rich and the stingy robs the poor. But perhaps she repented, Uncle, said Kate. I don't think she did, Katie. Look here. Uncle Cornelius drew from the breast pocket of his coat a black-edged letter. I have kept up my friendship with her brother, he said. All he knows about the matter is that either we had a quarrel, or she refused me. He is not sure which i must say for letitia that she was no tattler well here's a letter i had from james this very morning i will read it to you my dear mr heywood we have had a terrible shock this morning letty did not come down to breakfast and lizzie went to see if she was ill we heard her scream and rushing up there was poor letty sitting at the old bureau quite dead she had fallen forward on the desk, and her housekeeping book was crumpled up under her. She had been so all night long, we suppose, for she was not undressed and was quite cold. The doctors say it was disease of the heart. There, said Uncle Corney, folding up the letter. Do you think the ghost had anything to do with it, Uncle? asked Kate, almost under her breath. How should I know, my dear? Possibly. It's very sad, said Janet. But I don't see the good of it all. If the ghost had come to tell that she had hidden away money in some secret place in the old bureau, one would see why she had been permitted to come back. But what was the good of those accounts after they were over and done with? I don't believe in the ghost. Ah, Janet, Janet, but those wretched accounts were not over and done with, you see. That is the misery of it. Uncle Cornelius rose without another word, bade them good night, and walked out into the wind. End of Uncle Cornelius, His Story. End of Six Stories by George MacDonald. By George MacDonald.